Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we share the journey of a woman who lost her husband and soulmate to stage four metastatic melanoma cancer. His death and working through the grieving process has taught her the value of each moment and inspired her to share her experience and the lessons she's learned. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. This is the thing about weathering the grief storm. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Me as well. Um, You've got an incredible journey. And uh, it's an amazing, uh, positive one at the end. And I like to take uh, our listeners kind of through that. So where'd you grow up? So I was born in San Jose, California. And like a lot of Californians, we moved to Oregon uh, when I was in kindergarten. And I grew up in Central Oregon in Bend uh, until high school. And then my mom remarried and we moved to the Portland, Oregon area. And so I went to high school here and then I went to college at Lynn. It's now Linfield University. They've upgraded their name. It was Linfield College at the time. But uh, and uh just, you know, basically, and I'm an, I consider myself an Oregonian. I've been living in Washington State now for the last 20 some odd years, but I think I'll always be an Oregonian. My wife loves Oregon. We visited it a couple of times. She has some relatives up there. And um, she said, this is where I really want to be until we realized it's kind of cold sometimes. It does get cold in the wintertime, depending on where you are. Um, and I live in Vancouver, Washington now, which is a suburb of Portland, Oregon. I usually just tell people Portland because they think I'm Canadian. <laughs> Otherwise, but Vancouver is just across the bridge from Portland. So I'm really close to, to downtown Portland. Really, really close. Well, yeah. And, it, and it's that far north, too. So I'm sure you're going to get, it's going to be cold, actually. It is in the winter. Yep. So what was your family like? Um, I have three siblings. I have a younger sister and two older brothers. And we were just kind of a typical, you know, 1960s family. And then my parents divorced when I was in the fourth grade. And so I was pretty much raised by a single mom. And uh, she's still with us. She's 80 and almost 89 and incredibly strong and independent, still lives on her own. I'm helping her move this week to a different place. And so I have a great role model and uh, all but one of my siblings, my brother and sister live here and then my other brother's in Las Vegas. So, you know, we're we're sort of close. I mean, we keep in touch. You know, we do holidays together and that kind of thing. And then I have personally, I have two sons. They're grown and they live in New Orleans. They are musicians and love and life. We just went down and visited them a couple weeks ago. And then I have two stepchildren by my late husband who are in Seattle. And um, my current husband also has a son. So I have a couple grandkids too. My, my stepdaughter had a baby in December and I'm very much a part of their lives, which is really a huge blessing. Congratulations. Yeah. That's big, big family. You got a lot of family. I do. I do. Yeah. That's kind of nice. And I love, I love my grandkids. Being a grandparent is everything everyone ever tells you it is. That's for sure. I am still waiting for that day. I'm sure it's going to come at some point. Um, My kids, they're in the entertainment industry, just like your sons were done in New Orleans. A great place to be a musician, by the way. It is. Um, my daughter it was a, an actor in, 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 in the entertainment industry on various levels, and she started her career here in Phoenix area and then went to Las Vegas and spent a couple of years in Las Vegas opening a magic show there. And then, um, then moved to L.A., and now her and my son-in-law are involved in that. So it, and my youngest daughter is actually in digital media, so kind of... Kind of yeah. close, but not, not real close. So you went to university. What did you study? Uh, theater. I have a double major, theater and English literature, actually. And I really only got the English degree because my parents said, theater? Really? That's, you know, maybe you'll teach. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I actually had a job working with the Missoula Children's Theater, touring as a tour actor the day after I graduated. And I had business major friends who were unemployed after they graduated. So it was a little bit of a... I told you so to my parents. I actually worked as an actor director for 
a year and a half out of college. And, you know, my theater, I'm Take a speaker. That. Yeah, exactly. I'm a speaker and, uh, and my theater degree has really, you know, just stood me, stood, stood me in good stead through my whole career, really. Um, and then writing is just something that I've always sort of, it's, I always kind of look at it as a God-given talent. I've always been able to express myself in writing and the English degree certainly helped with that. And so, you know, being able to write, this is the first book I've, I've written in eBooks in the past, but it's not the same. This is the first actual book I've written. So you, yeah, and, and, and we're, we're going to get into that because it's uh, a very interesting book. And I think that uh, it's going to help people and motivate people and inspire people, uh, I believe. Um, can you help me understand what an ICF accredited life and business coach is? I will. So ICF stands for International Coach Federation. And the coaching world, you know, life coaches, there's a lot of jokes about us. And, you know, about 15 years ago, it really kind of exploded that whole, you know, vocation. And people were calling themselves coaches and there was no governing board. And so the ICF is really the only governing board in the, this, I think it's the whole world, but definitely this country. Mm. And so when I decided to become a certified coach, I actually went through a accredited program. It was about a year long um, study process. And so I am accredited. It always really kind of bugs me when people call themselves coaches who haven't ever really gone, you know, they just decided one day oh, I'm a coach. <laughs> So I've had a few of those on my podcast and actually didn't air them after the conversation when I realized it was just more of a, well, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. I mean, I worked really hard and I spent a lot of money and, you know, I, I have a skill that I've learned to do, you know, from an accredited board. So if that means anybody, anything to anybody, I guess it's important. Well, especially if you're dealing with life, I mean, exactly. it's a situation that you need to be trained properly and you need to understand properly, not just from experience level, but from an educational and academic level. And you know, what processes work and what, they, what processes don't work. Yeah. And you can't just jump in and say, I'm a coach. But I guess people you could, do. But, but, <laughs> people yeah, so do all the time. <laughs> it just, it really shouldn't be there, but that's okay. You are an ICF accredited life business coach, and that's Indeed. a good thing. We'll talk about that too. Um, so we're going to talk about your journey with your husband, John. Um, let's, talk, let's start there. When did you first meet John? I met him um, in my mid 40s. So I had been married for 13 years to my kid's dad, my two boys. And we have a great relationship. In fact, we wrote an ebook together called The Loving Divorce. And, you know, we've always been really great co-parents. We divorced when our kids were really young. And, um, and then I had what I call a movie of the week marriage. I was it was about a year long. And it was one of those things that I knew when I was walking down the aisle. I was making a mistake and just, I don't know. It was one, I don't know. It was a V8 moment. But anyway, after that marriage broke up, I took some time and did some work on myself and, you know, thought I probably better deal with whatever issues I'm having around men. And so when John came into my life, it was the perfect time. We met on match.com and um, he just, I always say, say he wasn't perfect, but he was perfect for me. And part of the reason for that was because he was strong enough to hold his own with me because I have a really big personality. I'm, I'm, you know, a lot for people. Um, and he never once made me feel like I was too much or I was too loud or I needed to, you know, tone it down, which I had heard my whole life from the men in my life. And, you know, he loved me because of who I was not in spite of it. And that was really, that was really a huge thing. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was my person, that we would retire and grow old together there was no question that I had found the one. And that's a very good thing, actually. And and actually, that's a testament to Pod. What is it? Um, uh, where you found him again? 
Oh, match.com to match online com? dating. Yeah. I was going to say Podmatch, but it's not Podmatch. Ma match.com. <laughs> so how long were you married before um, you found out that day, before you started noticing symptoms where they needed to be checked out? We had been married for four years together for six. Well, actually, we had been married for four years. No, married for two years when he was diagnosed, um, had been get together for about four. So he was diagnosed in October of 2013. And he just he came upstairs one morning. He had a lump in his groin. And he goes, feel that. And I said, how long has that been there? And he goes, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And I go, you need to get that checked as soon as possible. And um, it ended up, they removed three lymph nodes and they were all positive for metastatic, for, well, for met melanoma. At the time it was stage three. And they did a lymphadectomy on that leg and removed like 32 lymph nodes a couple months later. And everything looked clear. We thought, we, you know, we kind of had dodged a bullet. And um, then the following year, um, in 2014, he went in for a routine checkup and, and, uh, everything was fine, but we found out later that they hadn't gone far enough down with the CT scan on his leg and the scar tissue started growing. And I was like, that's not normal. I, I think you need to have it checked. He was 48 when he was diagnosed. And unfortunately, and this is a cautionary tale. We were, we never got around to getting life insurance for him. I had it because of my kids and, but he never did. And we never did get it. And once you're sick, you can't get it. So it was brutally hard for me. Help us understand what melanoma is, because most people think of melanoma as the little spots on the skin, right? Yeah. And this obviously is something under the skin. It's not the same thing. Can you help us understand that? Well, it, it's both. People don't think you can die from skin cancer, or I think there's a misconception that, you know, it's just skin cancer, I'll have it removed. And the truth is, if they find it on your skin, and they can remove it. And sometimes those surgeries are, they take, they have to take a lot. It's not pretty. Um, but generally stage, you know, two or three, you're okay. But once it gets inside your body, metastatic melanoma is one of the most deadly cancers. It's right up there with pancreatic and, you know, um, and when he was diagnosed in 2013, there was no treatment at all. Chemotherapy doesn't do any good, um, nor does radiation. There were some trials with immunotherapy and he went through all those. And immunotherapy is the newest sort of way to treat cancer. And it's great, except it also, your body also attacks your organs. So he ended up with severe, he almost died of kidney failure. And I mean, there was, there were all kinds of side effects to the, um, to the, the immunotherapy. And they told him with every therapy that he had a 50, 50 chance. So there, it's not like a lot of cancers where they say we can cure this. We have, and he fell on the wrong side of that equation with every treatment. And it was just really frustrating because, you know, his doctor had his our oncologist in Walla Walla, Washington, where we lived, had four patients when he started working with him. And within three years, two of them had been completely, they were cancer free, the drugs had worked, and two of them were dead. And John was one of them. So, so this was probably around 2014 then? 14. He, he was, yeah, he was re-diagnosed stage four in 14, and he died in 16. And I know that's interesting, the fact that um, chemo or radiation doesn't work within it. Understanding that neither one of us are doctors, is there a reason? Because, and the conversation you and I had beforehand, and some of my listeners know that I've had a journey with cancer with numerous members of my family, everything from esophageal to lung to leukemia to um, pancreatic. Uh, is there a reason why chemo and radiation doesn't work? They never gave us a reason. They just said there, I mean, initially they said there's really no treatment 
for this type of cancer. There are trials and we will do our best to get you in. And an immuno, immunology? Immuno, immunotherapy. So basically, yeah, it's uh, it's a totally different type of treatment. It's still like with chemo, you sit in the chair and they put it in your arm. But um, it, it just, it attacked his pancreas. It, it attacked his intestines. And he was really, you know, just, and when, once that happens, they have to take you off the, the right. medication. And so, um, you know, he just, he just really didn't, he didn't respond to anything. There was a, a, a treatment that we were hoping to do. We unfortunately waited too long. We went actually to the, um, the cancer center in Bethesda, Maryland, and he was trying to get into a trial there. And that was a T cell type thing where they actually take you in, they, they take out the, the cells that are attacking the cancer. They grow those until there's a bajillion of them. And then they bring you back and they completely remove all your white blood cells like in the ICU. Whoa. And then they put those cells back in. It's called tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy. I still remember that. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And unfortunately, if we had done that early on, which no one really told us about, um, it would have been fine. And he did get assessed there, but he had by the time he was a candidate. He had too many tumors in his intestines and they said that the treatment would probably kill him. So we were never able to do that. But again, that was a 50, 50 chance. So, you know, I understand this from a personal level, not from a spouse, but from my parents and my grandparents and my uncles. So what were the thoughts that ran through your mind when you guys got this diagnosis? I was devastated. I was terrified. They gave him initially a year to live and when he came home and told me that, I, I mean, I, I said, I didn't, that, I don't accept that. And he said, we're going to fight. We're going to do everything we can. But, you know, he was always optimistic. He was a rock. He was always, what's the next thing we can do? He's solution focused. And he kept me on track all the way up and really until almost the end. But it was, it was the type of, of, of out of control terror that I've never really, haven't really experienced too many other times in my life, you know, where you literally have no control. And, and the thing about cancer is it's just so much waiting, you know, you're waiting for the diagnosis or you're waiting for the test results, or you're waiting to get a scan. And you know, that it's just brutally scary, you know, and then if the answer you get is not the one you want, it's even worse. So in your situation, at least from obviously what we just talked about, you know, when somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, whether it be lung cancer or it's it's even leukemia or they need a bone marrow transplant or something, you you always have you have an opportunity to say, maybe we can fix this because they have this chemotherapy and this radiation. We have a friend of ours, right. very close friend of ours, that our kids grew up with their kids. Um, and my kids are like over, well, they're 30, 31, 31 and 29. I'm, I'm getting old. 31 and 29. <laughs> and, um, you know, they grew up with these. So we've known them for a long time. And yeah. she's going through the same kind of a battle from different perspectives. And, and she used chemotherapy and she used um, radiation. But then she went back for another checkup and it had shown up in another area. It's like it just chased mm -hmm. it to another area. And yeah. it's just difficult. Uh, you know, I'm sure. Well, the doctor told us when he was diagnosed, like he looked at us and said, this is a terminal cancer. There is no treatment. There is no cure necessarily. And even with melanoma, it was a 10% survivability rate over five years for my husband. And they don't even call it remission. They call it NED, which stands for no evidence of disease right now. 
mm-hmm. but you you always know, you know that that you're on like a a six month checkup for five years, and I mean, there it's just it's a very very deadly cancer, and you know that's why I, I'm always imploring people get your skin checked mm-hmm. because if they catch it when it's still on your skin, you have a much better chance. But if it gets into your lymphatic system, ten percent over five years, those are not great not odds. odds. Yeah, never never good odds at all. So obviously, you no. guys, there was no really steps to take into battle basically you just did well just the, the trials. trials and he did the trials yeah. yeah um and i realize this is cliche but did you guys determine at that time that you're going to take what time you have left to make it valuable or did was it something that kind of was stagnant due to the health i mean not we absolutely did that and he said to me at one point pretty early on we're we're going to live with cancer we're not going to live for it and we're not going to let it define us and he was really sick. I mean, he didn't feel great for most of the two and a half years um, after he was diagnosed and going through the treatments. And the tumor on his, the original tumor in his groin, it ended up being 17 centimeters. At one point, they removed it, did a skin graft. And by the, that was six months before he died. And by the time he died, it was back. Oh. It's a very fast growing cancer. And that's the size of a baseball, you know, on your leg. But we took a dream trip to Disney World. He had never been. We, he wanted to do that. You know, we did. We camped. We had a motorhome and a boat when he was diagnosed. And we did as much camping as we could. And um, we, we actually, the Thanksgiving, he died in February of 16. And the Thanksgiving before he died, we drove our motorhome down to California into the San Jose area to have uh, Thanksgiving with his kids who were living there. And it was great because we had a bed in the motorhome. So he was able to rest while I drove. And so, yeah, we definitely lived our life as much as we could. And that was his philosophy. He was not, you know, our whole philosophy was as long as we stay positive and we focus on love, then love wins in the end, no matter what. And that was really the post I made the day he died was, you know what? Cancer loses today because love wins and we are even though he's gone he's not in pain anymore and his legacy lives on and and i'm so. sure there's a, like a huge impact on both of your lives in in all aspects right it did absolutely um i became a caregiver much you know and and there was a point in time when i didn't even really feel like his wife anymore because i was just taking care of him all the time not ever completely and he never let me you know he would make me stop i'd be get, helping him out of the shower or whatever and he would make me stop and really connect with him and tell me he loved me. And, but yeah, it changed everything. And, um, it changed me in a really profound way. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book because, you know, going through something like this, you have two choices. You can either, you know, pull the covers up over your head and give up, or you can figure out, you know, what you're taking away from this, what, how it's going to impact your life and move forward in a, a better way. And it's what it's done for me is, is, as you said in the introduction, it's taught me to value every person in my life, every moment in my life, and to let the small stuff go. Um, you know, I was working a corporate job up until this past April, and I was miserable. And I finally just said, life is too short. I, I, I can't do this anymore. And it was the same week the book was releasing, and I felt like that was kind of a God thing. And so I walked away from a really hefty salary and great benefits just because life is too short. And so, uh, and he really understood that, you know, I mean, I have to say I could not have gone through this journey with anybody more amazing. And a good friend of mine said he taught us a masterclass in dying. He never once said, why me or poor me, or he never complained. He was always looking at, you know, what, what am I learning from this and how can I support you? And what do you need? I mean, he was just, he was an amazing human being for sure. 
And that in itself is a very uh, positive thing because it's, as caretakers, people, people unfortunately forget that becoming a caretaker, especially when you're in a marriage, then sometimes you lose the marriage. You, you become a caretaker and you forget what it's like to have a relationship. And yeah. it sounds to me like he kept the relationship within the caretaking. He did. I think he did. And I've been told that I think my book will be a really good one, not only for, for survivors and people who are grieving, but also for caregivers, because so much of the book is about that right. journey and how we manage that. And, um, you know, I just I have so much respect for him because he he really never allowed that to, and I nagged. I mean, I was, I was worried all the time. I was a, you know, I was a helicopter wife because he almost died of kidney failure. And, you know, so every, every time he, he coughed, I was concerned and, and, you know, he dealt with that with a lot of grace for sure. That's a, that's a very good thing. That's very, now you, prior to you writing this book though, you, you had started this journey with a blog, right? I had, I, I, I process through writing. I always have. I've been a journaler my whole life. And um, <clears throat> so I asked him early on if he'd be okay if I wrote a blog about it. And he said yes. And he approved every post. I never shared anything he didn't want me to share. But um, I had a fairly large following at the time because my business, I use social media quite a bit. And I had 5,000 Facebook friends and whatever. And so people started following. And a lot of people had followed from the minute we met all the way through our marriage. And, you know, so they oh, felt journey. like they were part of the journey. Yeah. And it was, it, it felt, I mean, I got a lot of support from our community and also I felt like I was making a difference for them too. You know, I was sharing, I had one woman tell me that her 17 year old daughter said after reading our blog, I, that's the kind of love I'm going to hold out for mom. That that's the kind of relationship I want. And you know, I mean that that's another reason I finally decided to write the book. It took five years because it was pretty mm -hmm. painful, but I wanted to put it down in one place. And, and I was so happy I had the blog too, Michael, because it meant that I could go back to the perspective I had that at that time as I was writing the book. Cause if I had written about, you know, the last week of his life from this perspective, I would have written it differently, mm -hmm. but to be able to go back and read the blog from in real time, from when I wrote it, I think makes the book much more um, impactful and real because it's, it, it was very, you know, you carry immediate. people through the journey step by step and not just in remembrance of, which is Correct. a good thing. What's it like to work through, this is going to be a bizarre question, but I'm sure that you were losing somebody instantaneously in the grieving process. And there's a, in, in watching somebody slowly die, knowing that the ultimate conclusion is death. What's it like coming from that side in, in working through that grieving process? I've had this conversation a couple times. I've been in widows groups and we've talked about the difference between, you know, that instant unexpected loss of a car accident or whatever. And this long goodbye that we really had. Um, because, you know, like I said, we knew it was terminal for pretty much the whole two years and definitely the last five months when the radiologist looked at his scan and said, look, there's no, you have months. So get your affairs in order. And, you know, um, for me, I feel like as the surviving spouse, it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of grieving with my husband because he was still there and I would cry every night, you know, when we went to bed and he would say, I'm so sorry that there's nothing I could do to make this easier on you. And it's going to be. Hey, don't go away. Michael Hurst here, your host. I have some exciting news to share with you. My favorite person listening. Yeah, you. You've heard us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and so many more. You've heard us in 59 countries and growing. And I'm very, very grateful for that. 
You've learned about it, and you've been listening since January 2020. Now you can experience at a new level on YouTube. We're still here on your favorite listening platforms and always will be. This is a bonus. The personal journeys, the words never said, the answers you've been looking for. We have some fantastic guests, compelling personal stories, unique perspectives, and more. So please subscribe. It's free. Or follow us. It's also free. Catch up on your favorite episodes prior to the official launch, August 6, 2021. Please pass it on to your friends. We'd love to have them experience it just as well, either on this podcast or on YouTube. And download our exclusive app for iOS or Android. Yes, we have an app for one more thing before you go. Bring us with you. Compliments of Superpass, our sponsor. Find it in the App Store and in Google Play. Superpass. Take your business online, create a website and app instantly, share your content, take your business to a whole new level with an entertainment and contact hub in the palm of your hand. Find out more before you go podcast.com. Superpass. And don't forget to join our private VIP membership club with an amazing exclusive benefits. Remember the 100th episode here on this podcast is simultaneously premiering on YouTube, August 6th, 2021. What are you waiting for? Join the conversation. So, you know, he said, you have the harder job. If I could trade places with you, I would, because it's going to be horrible for you once I'm gone. And, you know, the other thing about that was he was on hospice for uh, about two and a half weeks and it gave us all his children. He also has an identical twin brother. Um, It gave us all the opportunity to say everything we needed to say, hear everything we needed to hear. You know, by the time he died, that was all said and done. And you don't get that opportunity if someone's taken from you instantly. So there's, but we also watched him starve to death. What ultimately killed him was a tumor that closed off his stomach on his duodenum. And basically he was 75 pounds at six foot one by the time he died. So essentially he starved to death. So you, we had the horrible, you know, experience of watching him starve to death in the middle of our dining room for two and a half weeks. And I don't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So you know, I don't think that there's an, a better or an easier way. They both have their pros and cons for sure. Um, but I did, I did do a lot of grieving prior to his death. And I think that that helped me a little bit once he was gone. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because as my career, for example, even personally and professionally, both I've, I've seen instantaneous and I have, I have watched somebody um, we took care of my wife's father, um, in particular, the last 18 months of his life, and he had Lewy body dementia. And so we understand that process, and I empathize with you. And you're coming out on the end of that in a positive way and moving it forward in a positive way, especially with this book, and having to educate, inform, and inspire, and motivate people that there is opportunity to move forward, you know, is a bonus. Well, I, I have always believed that everything that happens in my life, everything is there to teach me. And that's the only reason it's there. And, and, you know, we as human beings assign good or bad to the events in our lives, but the truth is they just are, they're events. And, you know, you have a choice as far as how you respond to that and how, what you take away. Now I, mm-hmm. I say in the book, you know, it, it takes time. Like I didn't have this perspective in the first nine months to a year after he died, I was just hurt and angry and sad. But once I had some time to kind of, you know, move away from the intense, intense grief, I could look and see, okay, this is why this happened. And this is what I am taking away from it. And in fact, the week before he died, he said, you know, it's not a mistake that you're a writer, 
and that I ended up with you and going through this because you're taking this horrible experience and you're turning it into something that will help other people. And if nothing else, that could be the reason for my death. And I feel like the book is not only a legacy to him, but the way that I've chosen to live my life after he exited it is also a part of his legacy. And that's really, really important to me. You know, he would not be okay with me hiding, you know, myself away and crying for the rest of my life. That wasn't what he wanted. Well, I think, I think you had a, um, an unfortunate incident, an unfortunate journey that, but you had positives and negatives out of that because you had the positive is you got to go out and do some things that you probably would have waited to do or not had the opportunity to do. And just like my podcast, you got to say that one more thing before he left, which is valuable. Priceless. 100% valuable, priceless. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so if in that respect, I'm assuming, in essence, as you say, your journey didn't stop when he died. It started when it he died. It started. Yeah. So let's talk about that chapter in your life. So you move forward from there. How long did it take you to go through the grieving process after that process and get started, let's say, on, on the uh, the things that you're doing now? The book, I was going to say, I don't know things. what day is it. I, I will never be through the grieving <laughs> process ever. And that's one thing I definitely learned. It, it sort of sucked to finally figure that out, you know, and that it's been over five years and I still am, can be reduced to, you know, anguished sobs. If, it, and it doesn't happen very often, but grief is an ongoing thing. But I think, you know, so when he was sick and I was blogging, everybody kept saying, you have to turn this into a book. And my standard answer was, I will do that when I have my happy ending. And for me, my happy ending meant John beat cancer and, you know, everything was was golden. And then when he died, all of a sudden, I literally woke up the morning after he died and thought, okay, what am I going to do now? My whole, you know, when you lose your spouse, your whole life ends really with that person because mm-hmm. every plan if you have a good marriage that you ever had with that spouse is gone now you know and I remember saying to my stepdaughter you know I don't know what I'm going to do next my, my youngest son was about to graduate from high school and she goes well dad would want you to look at this as an adventure and I said yeah an adventure I never asked for <laughs> that I really don't want right now so that took some time honestly I dove in headfirst to grief because I wanted to get through it the, the worst of it as quickly as I could. So I took advantage of the hospice counseling, which is incredible. They, they, they really, they told me the day he died, our work starts now. We're really here more, you know, for, and they, all they do is grief counseling and that counseling saved my life. I did two rounds of that same counselors group, you know, grief support group. I did an online grief support group. I read every book I could get my hands on. I wanted to, to get through that part of it. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I talk in the book about, um, I, 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 when I wrote the book, I outlined the process that I actually ended up going through and I, it's called the thrive process. That's the acronym. But what I realized as I kind of started looking in retrospect was there was a moment when I realized I was feeling joy for the first time. I think it was about six months after he died. And I also realized I was holding sorrow in that same space. And I realized that I had to be come okay with holding sorrow and joy in the same space at the same time, because that's really what grief requires of you, honestly. And, um, you know, so I still do that a lot, honestly. And I started really looking at, okay, 
what's next for me? And so the second part of the book is really my journey once he died. And I kept blogging. And I'm really glad I did. Because again, I got out on paper how I was feeling, what I was going through, how I was dealing with it, what it meant for me. And so by the, you know, when I wrote the book, the second half of the book really is a love story with myself. It's me coming back to myself, understanding that I can live again and have a life. And I, you know, there were certainly times early on when I, I wanted to check out, but I had kids and I couldn't do that. But I mean, I was in intense pain and that does go, it it does get better, but it never goes away. I mean, that's, I had someone say to me about three months after John died, you seem like you're better. Are you? And I said, no, I'm not. I might not be crying all the time, but trust me, I'm not better. You want me to be better. But yeah, we, we all put a mask on and the mask because we feel that we, we need to act a certain way or be a certain way, or the time frame needs to be bottled up into this time frame. It's going to be done in five days, it's going to be done in seven days, it's going to be done in 30 days. But in reality, it, it can it can last a long, long time, a couple of years. Yeah. And you all you want to do when you're in the middle of that pain is circle a date on the calendar. Oh my gosh, that's all I, I just wanted to say, you know, tell me when it's going to be over. Well, in, in, unfortunately, there are times that people that are put into that position, um, and I'm being realistic about this, there are people that, that's why you see a spouse dies, and within 30 days to six months later, the other spouse dies because literally they died of loneliness and a broken heart because mm-hmm. they didn't know what to do. Yes. So Especially the cliche, older yeah, yeah, the cliche of the broken heart is is actually true. Mm-hmm. There, you know, it just happens. So moving forward is a positive thing, and you, I think you you have done that. How does the Thrive program kind of fall into this? Is that where it was? Is that what motivated you, or is that where it was born? Well, you know what? It was born, I didn't realize, I mean, I wasn't sitting in the middle of it thinking, oh, I'm doing, you know, this, this part of this. But as I, what happened was I worked with a book coach to help me pull the blog together. And he said, it's really your responsibility to write a book that um, makes a difference and that has a process that people can follow beyond just your stories that you could teach as an online course or at a, you know, weekend retreat or whatever. And so he gave me, his name's Jim House. He's the book carver. He's amazing. And he gave me this you know, sort of process for finding my process. And, and I mean, I just, you know, the, the thrive acronym kind of came to me one day and I felt like it was so perfect because I did start to thrive eventually. And that's really what everybody who's grieving, I think looks for. So thrive stands for trust yourself initially. And that really is a huge part, not only of grieving, but also if you're dealing with someone who's ill you know, I really, I, I tapped into my intuition and I really followed what I was being told, even if, you know, cause the doctor doesn't ever care as much about your person as you do. And so there's a piece to that. So trusting yourself. And even after he died, making decisions that, you know, the standard wisdom was, you're not supposed to make any changes for a year. And I moved within six months, you know, those types of things. Um, so that's the, the, the T trust yourself. H stands for honor your feelings. And I was just talking to my mom found out last night that one of her very dear friends has cancer. And you know, she said, I have to be strong. And I said, no, mom, you have to feel your feelings. You know, just being strong and shoving them down isn't going to help. So honoring your feelings is the second piece of it. Remaining present in the moment, which again, I did that as, I, as much as I possibly could, because the more you can be present with what's happening and acknowledge it, the easier it is to get through it. 
Um, I stands for invest in yourself. And that really is about not just financially, but the time that you need to get through the grieving process. You know, there were times I was an entrepreneur. There were times when I had a plan to work that day that I just grief was in control and it was, you know, clear that that wasn't going to happen for that day. So, and also really, I talk in the book too about investing in some sort of counseling, whether it's a group or one-on-one, but I really feel strongly that if you're grieving, you have to have someone to talk to to help you, give you some tools to get through that. Um, V stands for vow to act. And that's never been a problem for me. I'm an action taker. And I, I really feel like even small baby steps are another, again, another way to sort of through that grief. And then with the E and thrive is embrace the learning, which we've already talked about, which really is about, you know, just looking at what happened and asking mm-hmm. what, what can I, what have I learned from this and how has it changed me? So uh, if I want to understand here from the thrive process and you taking and building the thrive process, that kind of brought you to to the completion of the book? Yeah, it was actually, funnily enough, it was part three of the book. And I always knew it was going to be part three of the book. And it was the only part that hadn't really been written at all, you know, because I, I mined my story from my blog for the first two parts. Of course, I, you know, like expanded on it. But for the most part, it was pretty copy paste easy to write because I had already written it. But that third part, I came up with the thrive process and then I procrastinated. And it was... What? You know, because I had to actually sit down and write it. What motivated you to write the book in the beginning? I mean, you had this blog, obviously, that that people have been following, and it told your journey. What What was your inspiration to compile that into a book? That's a good question. I just so many people kept saying they felt that I needed to, and that would be really helpful. That was the biggest piece. Was I want to help as many people as I can, and sending them to the blog is clunky. It's hard to read, and and I really wanted to with retrospect, and I started writing the book two and a half years after he died, to really bring it all together into one package. And that's what I ended up doing. And, you know, at the end of last year, I I had still been procrastinating. And I actually, I had a corporate job and I had two weeks of vacation. And my co-worker said, what are you going to do with that time? And I go, well, I should finish my book. And she goes, well, why don't you do that? Are you going to do that? And I said, okay, I'll commit to finishing it by the 31st. And on the 28th, I said to my husband, my current husband, all right, I got to write because I made this commitment to her and myself and I just sat down and did it. And it didn't take that long once I got started, but you know, you're looking at the blank page and the blinking cursor and that's the, the writer's the deadline of the 31st. <laughs> and I got it done on the, on the 31st at two o'clock in the afternoon, I wrote the end of the final chapter. So. Well, that's amazing. You know, it's an interesting uh, title, weathering the grief storm. So how did, where'd you come up with that? That's, that's a fantastic. That was the hardest part about writing the book, Michael. I'm not even kidding. You know, because I wrote the the blog under the the um, title "Love Trumps Cancer," and for obvious reasons, no matter where, no matter how you feel about Donald Trump, my editor and publisher said to me that 100 percent cannot be your title. You do not want the Good search idea. that comes up with that name. So I agree with him. So I couldn't use that and. You know, there were just, you know, live like Johnny was a hashtag that we came up with after my husband died. And anyway, I went through a lot of back and forth and grief, a grief storm is a real thing that's defined in grief counseling. And it's, it's what happens when it just hits you and you're like taken to your knees and it it sort of blows through your life like a hurricane is actually how I write about it in the book. And it doesn't take very long, but it does leave some devastation in its wake. And 
weathering the grief storm really is about how you move through everything I've been through and, you know, come out the other side. And the tagline for the book, which my, my publisher helped me come up with is learning to thrive within loss, not through loss, not, but it's within it because it, I will always have this loss. And, you know, I'm very blessed to be remarried to an amazing man. And my husband, late husband said, I'm going to send you the perfect person the week before he died. And of course I was at that point saying, well, I can't even don't, I I don't, I don't want to hear it, but he knew, he said, you're a partnership person. And I feel strongly that he had something to do with me meeting Mark. But when I met him, I said, you know, there will be three people in this relationship and you need to understand that I will never stop loving my husband. I will never stop grieving that loss. There are pictures of him all over our house. I talk about him all the time and you have to kind of get to know him because he's a huge part of who I am and why I am who I am in my life. So, you know, I think that process, you know, that thriving within loss is a, is the perfect tagline and it is a grief storm. I mean, all of it from, from the, the bigger picture to that minute moment when it happens. So I felt when I finally came up with that title and believe me, we went through a lot of other ones. It felt perfectly right. Well, I think it fits down. It really fits in your current husband. What's, what's his name? Mark. Mark. Mark is an outstanding individual as a person and as a male for taking the time to um, understand that and to make that happen. Well, and for not being, you know, uh, threatened. I dated a couple people exactly. before him. And one of them actually said to me, it's like you're pining away for your dead husband. You need to get over it. And at that point, I said, yeah, you're not the one. <laughs> you need to get exactly. lost. Thank you. But, you know, we had that conversation. And I've said to him more than once, I'm amazed. He never, he, he lets me cry. He never once feels threatened. And he said, he says, why would I be threatened by a dead guy? I mean, no offense, but it's not like he's coming back, you know? Well, in reality, he sees you as a person, an individual, he's compassionate and he's empathetic in, in the fact that he understands where you came from and where you're at now. And he respects that. And that's the way relationships should be. It's everything. I I still can't, I feel like I've struck the, I've hit the lottery twice in my life with him because John was amazing. I never thought I'd find anyone who loved me the way he did. And then comes Mark. So, and I feel like John sort of delivered. He promised and he always kept his word. So it's not surprising. Oh, kudos to all involved. Yeah. How important is it for us to make every minute count? It's the only reason we're here. It's vitally important. And I think what we as human beings, especially Americans, forget is that your life can change in an instant. Mine did. And, you know, with a, with a visit from a police officer or a phone call or a doctor's diagnosis, your life can change in an instant. And you never know what's going to happen. And tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So, yeah, you know what? I went on a, I went on a, a tour with a chorus I had been singing with to New Zealand right after John died, the year after he died. And I could not afford that. It was a dumb thing to do financially, but he had made me promise because the trip had been in the works before he died that I would do it. And you know, the truth is I put it on a credit card and I paid it off in the last few years. And I don't regret one second taking that trip because it was the trip of a lifetime. And, you know, so sometimes I'm not saying go in debt, but sometimes you have to look at, you know, the opportunity and, like I said, I quit my corporate job because I, I just realized that it was sucking the life out of me. And I'd much rather make some sacrifices here and there and be happy than go to do a job that pays me well every day that is making me miserable. 
So every day matters is the most important lesson any of us have to learn. That's outstanding. What inspires you? Um, you know, I think people inspire me. The people in my life inspire me. People who are willing to take a risk and, you know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. Um, my grandchildren definitely inspire me. It's, it's, I, I feel strongly that anywhere in my life that I see love is, is where I am inspired. And I'm always looking for that. And I have so much love in my life and so many people who are still here who, you know, are a huge part of making me happy and or helping me make myself happy, you know, being happy. So, yeah, I think I'm inspired by love and that comes through the people in my life. What kind of coaching do you do? I was doing mostly business coaching uh, for many years, and but I am a certified life coach and the program that I went through uses a lot of neuro-linguistic programming, which I love the, those concepts. There's so much to that. And so I'd really love to get actually back into some grief counseling. I also feel strongly about rewriting the narrative around grief and what you're supposed to do and how it's supposed to look, because there is no such thing. And our society puts a lot of pressure yep. on people either, either saying, okay, you've grieved long enough, get over it, or like in my case, what do you mean you're dating after nine months? That's not appropriate. You know, well, who's to say? So I really am feeling some impetus through the book and beyond to, to do some coaching around or some training around, you know, what grief really is and what it isn't. And, you know, how even how you as someone who's supporting someone who's grieving, you know, what can you do that's appropriate that will help them and what isn't and won't because, there's both sides of that coin. So I think it's a very, uh, a very profound goal. It is. I would love to, you know, I've, I'm working with a couple other people who I've connected with through the book who are interested in supporting me with that task. Speaking of books, how can somebody find your book and more about you? Very simply weathering the grief And that's the title of the book, weathering the grief storm. You can also find it on Amazon and Kindle hardback or paperback. And I am just really, you know, honored and, and humbled. There are a lot of great reviews already. The book's only been out for a couple months and it's been really fun to watch those reviews come in. And so weatheringthegriefstorm.com is where you want to go. That's always a good thing. This is one more thing before you go. Is there anything that you'd like to say before you go? Any words of wisdom? You know, the greatest thing I can admonish your listeners to do is to pay attention and be present. And it's very hard to do that in our virtual digital world. We all have these cell phones that are never more than, you know, arms reach away. And we're, a lot of people are very tied to those, you know, the TV's on, whatever, you have your computer. The truth is at the end of John's life, we shut all that down and we paid attention to each other and to him. And I'm going to tell you, nothing you will see on a screen is as important as the people in your life. So shut it down be present and pay attention to those people and those experiences and those moments that are happening right in front of you. Those are outstanding words of wisdom. I think everybody should take, take notes, write it down, listen to it several times, and practice it on a regular basis. I will have your notes, your website, and how to get a hold of you in regard to your coaching, if they need it, as well as how to get a hold of the book and download it and purchase it and any other information about you and your life journey 
on our website. So um, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us. I really appreciate you taking the time with me and my audience in regard to um, grief and how you've overcome and done such an outstanding job of moving forward in life. It was my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.